you know, we have talked about the CIA, we have talked about Al Qaeda, we have talked about North Korea, the FBI, we've talked about some outfits that are pretty scary. Never once did I think that they would retaliate against us. But this time I'm worried. This is all a test. This is all a test. This is all a test. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm here today with Nathan Radke. Hello. Lee Kunla. Hiya. And myself, Elena Papianis. I'm excited about today because it is a very interesting topic, controversial topic. Lee, you got way deep into the rabbit hole for this. Oh, yeah. uh, and Nathan, you have like, what's, didn't you tell me a story once about uh, doing a personality test on a date? Did they ask you to do that? Uh, did the person I was on the date with ask me to do it? Yeah. Yes, she did now that I think about it. Um, huh. So I was out, this was years and years ago. I was, it was 20 year old Nathan and he was out on a date. Uh, it was an early date. So, you know, you're kind of feeling each other out. And we were just sort of walking around Yonge Street in Toronto and we passed this large building and there was people out front and they said that they were, they were giving free personality tests. Now we were university students and so we're very poor. And so this seemed like an excellent thing that we could do without spending any money. And so we said, sure, we'll take a personality test. I mean, personally, I had always wondered if I had a personality and I thought this is the moment that I will find out. <laughs> so we go in, they separate us immediately. Always great to do on a date. Uh, I was asked a bunch of questions that, that seemed odd to me. Some of them were things about my personality. Others were about how I slept or how my muscles felt. And after they asked me a bunch of these questions, I was presented with a chart. And the person told me that it would appear that you have some terrible flaws. Mm. And I, I mean, sure, of course. I mean, you guys know, you've known me for years. You know that I have many terrible flaws. But to see it on a piece of paper like that was, was quite shocking. Because basically, it was sort of a line graph, and up was good, and down was bad. And all of my points were way at the bottom. And I said, so what are these things? Like I scored like minus 90 in one out of minus a possible minus 100. So I said, well, I've got minus 90 on this one. Like what, what is it that I have minus 90 in? And they said, well, to learn about that, you're going to have to like do some follow-up. And the personality test is free, but the follow-up, of course, well, it would be well worth it to find out just how terribly flawed I was. That was going to start running me some money. Uh, and at that point, the woman I was with and I left and went to a pub and, and had some burgers and beers. But of course, what I had done, what I had experienced was uh, the first step in joining a belief system called Scientology. I didn't know that that's how they did it. I didn't know that they were people on the street kind of trying to get you involved by through things like this, through just like testing. There were back in the 1990s. Okay. Uh, no, these I, had a, I had a similar experience to Nathan's at I wasn't on a date. I was maybe too young. Um, I'm sure it was the same place um, because there used to be a large bookstore on Young Street called Cole's Books. And I used to go there uh, in my teenage years because in Toronto, that was one of the places you could find a lot of interesting stuff just because of the size of their selection. And at that time, I was super into self-help stuff. Anything from Eastern mysticism all the way to like Tony Robbins kind of psych yourself up into, you know, success. And 
right beside the bookstore was another bookstore. It was weird because it only sold one book, uh, but it was the same. It was the Dianetic Center. And this was promising the best self-help book on the market. Mm. Now, I constantly felt intrigued because I was precisely the, you know, on a spiritual quest, trying to figure stuff out, pretty young, pretty impressionable. I was reading this kind of material anyway uh, from a broad spectrum of authors. And the only reason I didn't ever go in, because they only had one book, and I was like, well, the, the bookstore next door has got like 50 different types of books on the same subject. So I'll just go there. But I often think how close I got because I would have, I think, gone the next step from what Nathan did is I would have maybe signed up for a course, which, Elena, to your question, is in fact how it gets going. You go in for this test. You also get asked what's bothering you, what's, what's messing up your life. And then you're told that not only do you, as Nathan points out, do you have these kind of negative characteristics, but that they have courses which will address those characteristics and the thing that's causing trouble in your life, and you'll be able to solve it. And that, I mean, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, that would be very seductive to somebody on this quest, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. And at no point do they say you have to join a religion. At no point do they say we are a religion. Uh, they just say we've got some courses and they can help. And before we go any further, it was very compelling that in the research I did, a lot of people who actually became full-fledged members of Scientology said that this is where they got uh, snagged because the courses did often help. Mm-hmm. Not in the long run, but they would take a course. Even Jerry Seinfeld apparently credits a Scientology course on communication with helping him overcome his nerves in doing live comedy. Hmm. There's a lot of people who say things along those lines, like I was feeling depressed and I took this course and I felt better. And it's precisely that lure which hooks a certain segment of people who walk through the front door and then they take that first course and a certain segment of them gets fully enmeshed in this before we get even further in, I have a preamble that I would like to, to, to say, because we've done a lot of work lately on the concept of belief. I mean, in a way, all of our episodes are about belief, uh, particularly in those areas where we don't have enough information to come to a secure conclusion. And so we do episodes on Bigfoot, Mothman, the deaths of famous people, UFOs. I mean, we basically live in that weird liminal space between the known and the totally unknown. And, and, I think you guys would agree, you can't live there like we do without developing a healthy sense of humility about what we can and can't know. And I, I like to think that that humility leads to some empathy and sympathy. Once we start to realize how much we don't know and can't know, we can better understand people who have views and beliefs that are different from our own. Even when we disagree with someone's beliefs, we can better understand where that belief comes from. Uh, If somebody tells me that they're suspicious about mass vaccine programs because history is littered with things like the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, I might disagree with their conclusion, but I could sympathize with their position. And there's something that's intrinsically connected to human beliefs, and that's the idea of myth. Humans are are myth-making creatures. Some of our earliest stories are things like the Epic of Gilgamesh. As a species, we use those myths to try to understand our past and our current situation. And as individuals, we mythologize our own memories in an attempt to make sense of them and and make sense of ourselves. 
So we should try to understand myths for what they are, symbolic stories that are infused with lessons and insight. And I think we do myths a disservice when we try to interpret them as literal fact. When we read Plato's story of the cave, we, we don't need to point out that no cave like that existed or that people who were chained to a bench for their whole lives wouldn't have been able to go to the washroom or whatever. And so what, what does all this mean? It means that when we encounter a belief system that's different from ours, we should bear in mind the ridiculousness of our own beliefs and try to understand the meaning behind the beliefs rather than just nitpicking some of the literal aspects of the myths that support those beliefs. But when those myths are treated as literal truths and when they're used to oppress or exploit other human beings, that's when I think we take the gloves off. Because we might at the same time understand with sympathy why individuals hold on to a belief system while at the same time critically examining the origins and consequences of that belief system. And that's why we came up with a recent cult spectrometer, basically to see, how to see how exploitative any specific belief system might be. In the last few months, we looked at an American UFO group from the 1950s that believed that the world was about to end and that flying saucers were about to land and save a chosen few. They had beliefs that proved to be incorrect. Obviously, the world didn't end. Flying saucers didn't show up. But if you think about their beliefs as a wish fulfillment metaphor for Cold War nuclear terror, then it makes more sense. And most importantly, the leaders of that group didn't use those beliefs to exploit the other group members, and they didn't hurt anyone. They were a group that shared a, an unconventional belief, but they weren't a cult by our definition. Now, you could contrast that UFO group with the Japanese doomsday group Aum Shinrikyo, who we also looked at. Now, in that case, the belief system structure of the group contributed directly to the exploitation of the leader's followers and to the eventual mass murder of innocent people in the Tokyo subway. In that case, our spectrometer classified the group as a cult. And I say all of this because today we're examining an unconventional belief system, and it's not a belief system that any of us belong to. So we should approach it carefully and charitably. But if it turns out that in our opinion, this belief system serves as a structure that supports oppression and exploitation, then we're going to say so. And we're going to say why we think so. Because the three of us, I think you guys would agree, we follow the belief system that humans are flawed but interesting creatures that deserve dignity, compassion, and respect. Any myth or belief system that contributes to human degradation is going to be a myth that we sharpen our claws on. So now, with my big preamble over, let's get into this and find out what is this belief system about? All right, let's do it. I'm really glad you said that, Nathan, because I wanted to say something along the same lines. For me, it was what I realized in doing the research around Scientology was that first, I'm not, anything that I say today isn't about Scientologists as uh, members of a religion. I would even go further to Nathan's point that for me, the theology of Scientology is not at all at issue. I mean, I don't personally think it's a plausible worldview, and yet I really don't see it as any more threatening than a lot of other religious theologies that I, I equally don't agree with. But I think you're right. I think what we are criticizing here are the practices, to what extent they even emerge from that belief system is itself questionable, but there are really dangerous and scary practices that uh, are operating within that organization that make it our, actually <laughs> our first corporate conspiracy. Now, that's a bit out of uh, the blue, but 
for a very long time in this podcast, we've been promising to also look at corporate conspiracies. And we've never done it uh, so far, even though we've mentioned a bunch. And it was in my research uh, into this where it struck me that this is actually our first corporate conspiracy. And this, um, and I think that's where it is interesting for us as well as theorists of conspiracies. The nature of this conspiracy is there's an institution that is acting conspiratorially by preying on church members and people in their vicinity. Um, and so, yeah, like just following on Nathan's point, I don't have any issue with individual Scientologists. I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. I'm not trying to belittle people for beliefs that I don't agree with. But there is something that I think is fundamentally scary and dangerous here that um, I think is worth exploring. But okay, let's do it then. So we're talking about uh, a religion called Scientology, which was founded by a man named Lafayette Ronald Hubbard, who was born in the United States of America in 1911. Lafayette uh, Ronald Hubbard is more famously known either as L. Ron Hubbard, or later even within Scientology simply as LRH, just as initials. He was uh, a, quite a fascinating man, I have to admit. He was one of those jack of all trades, hucksters, charlatans, snake oil salesmen. He scrounged a living. You know, this is, I think, to some extent common to biographies of people who lived in some way through the First World War, through the Great Depression, um, and who, you know, are full grown adults at the advent of the Second World War trying to, you know, scrounge a living for their kids. And I, I'm not going to hold it against people. You've got to figure out how to make ends meet. And maybe it isn't always savory. Uh, this is the period in which the mafia becomes a real force in American society. And Elwan Hubbard is a charlatan and a snake oil salesman at a kind of a low level of danger. He's not causing a lot of trouble. He earns in as much as he's earning any money. He earns it as a pulp fiction writer, mostly science fiction uh, works. The way these guys got paid is they got paid by the word. And the way you then made money is to write as many words as quickly as possible. He is apparently the Guinness Book of World Record holder on the most books published. He was an author that was known to Pulp Fiction readers. Uh, he was not a very famous author, but he was also not a complete nobody. He did an okay business. Apparently, the, the money that the family got was not really earned through his writing. It, he was more subsidized by his father and his wife. But okay, there's a Pulp Fiction author. In the late 40s, he writes an article which changes everything. And it's called Dianetics, the Science of Modern Mental Health. And it's published in a science fiction journal. It is by far the most mail that that journal receives um, for any piece that L. Ron Hubbard has ever written. It becomes an acclaimed piece of literature and uh, the publishers of the magazine immediately request that L. Ron Hubbard turn this article called Dianetics into a book, and he does. 
And at the beginning of the 1950s, um, we have the creation of basically a self-help book, which shoots to the number one uh, New York Times bestseller list and stays there for, I think, a decade. So this is where L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, moves from pulp fiction writer to a writer of a number one best-selling, interestingly, work of self-help. And so there's a couple things that we need to understand then to see how that transition is made from the sci-fi author to the self-help author. And I think there's two stories that go some way to explaining what's going on in L. Ron Hubbard's life at that time. Of course, one of the things, because we're talking about the early 1940s, one of the things that happened was World War II. And a really key important part of the mythology that grows around L. Ron Hubbard, in part driven by his own speeches and writings, is that during World War II, he is a war hero who is badly injured. The, uh, the Scientology version of the story is this. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard joins up with the Navy. He is uh, sent to Australia, where he organizes the resupplying of trapped American forces on Bataan, saving them from defeat. I mean, single-handedly, he sneaks onto the island of Java to look for supplies. He gets cut off by the invading Japanese soldiers. He's escaping on a rubber raft. He's getting fired upon. Uh, he gets injured again. Later, he gets sent back to the States where he commands a convoy escort vessel, and he becomes a sub-chaser in the Pacific and the Atlantic, which is an extremely dangerous but very important job at the time, because, of course, there are uh, places like England that are, are being cut off by German submarines. Uh, and so his job was to protect the convoys as they tried to supply the Allies. And in the, by the end of the war, he is badly wounded, but highly decorated. And this is a very important part of the L. Ron Hubbard mythology, and it's something that he said a lot during speeches and he wrote a lot about. However, this is the thing about myths and perspective, because we also have the official story from the files of the U.S. Navy. And according to the U.S. Navy, this is what happened. After serving a short time in Australia, uh, Hubbard is ordered back to the States by Colonel Merle Smith, who was the U.S. Naval Attaché to Australia, and the colonel sends a cable to Washington stating this about Hubbard. By assuming unauthorized authority and attempting to perform duties for which he has no qualifications, he became the source of much trouble. This officer is not satisfactory for independent duty assignment. He is garrulous and tries to give impressions of his importance. He also seems to think he has unusual ability in most lines. These characteristics indicate that he will require close supervision for satisfactory performance of any intelligence duty. In addition, according to the Navy, there is no record of him spending any time in Java or of him being wounded. Uh, instead, the Navy says that he was sent back to the U.S. to command the YP-422, a former fishing trawler in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, he was removed on October 1st, 1942, for being unfit for command and sent to the Pacific Theater. Uh, he was then given command of the PC-815 subchaser. On its very first cruise, Hubbard became convinced that there were two Japanese subs nearby and fired off dozens of depth charges, uh, lots of explosions, called in more ships and a couple of blimps to assist, but no evidence was found of any Japanese sub in the area. Now, Hubbard would later claim that he sunk the Japanese sub, the I-76, but the thing is that particular Japanese sub was sunk by American destroyers near the Solomon Islands in June of 1944. No Japanese submarine was recorded lost off the coast of the mainland United States. Instead, according to a U.S. Navy investigation of the incident, 
Hubbard was probably just firing depth charges at a known magnetic deposit in the area. Then later that year, Hubbard was off the coast of the Coronado Islands, and he orders his crew to practice firing on the island because he doesn't realize it's actually Mexican territory. And so the Mexican government obviously complains that America just attacked them, and Hubbard was removed from command, at which point he reported sick with possible malaria. There was a few months in a hospital after that with an ulcer. He was briefly the navigation officer for a cargo ship and then spent the rest of the war being trained at the School of Military Government, after which he failed his exams and spent the rest of the war in Oak Knoll Naval Hospital with stomach pains. According to Hubbard, he received dozens of medals. According to the U.S. Navy, he received four. And the four medals that he received, according to the Navy, uh, the American Defense Service Medal given to anyone who was in the military on the day of Pearl Harbor, American Campaign Medal given to everyone who served in the American Theater of, of Operations, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal given to everyone who served in the Pacific, and the World War II Victory Medal just given to everyone. If you were in the military, you got this medal. So here we see this distinction between the mythos that L. Ron Hubbard tries to build of this sort of adventurous life. And then from this other perspective, the Navy argues his career was not what he said it was. Now, okay, so this kind of, I guess, exaggerated self-importance gets infused into the mythology. Does he also carry it along in the way he speaks? Is it in Dianetics? Is it, does it translate into a kind of confidence building or self-importance amongst followers as well? And is that what they're kind of building in people? When I was listening to Nathan recount L. Ron Hubbard's time in the military and then L. Ron Hubbard's own description of it, this is a theme that's, that you can see throughout his biography, which is he'll take something that is true. You know, he was in the military or he was in the Navy or he did, you know, was in hospital. He wasn't feeling well. Those true elements are then so inflated in his biography where the truth is he is ill for a little bit, goes to hospital, fully recovers. The claim is that he was paralyzed during the war and that his amazing gifts of mental prowess were able to help him, you know, rebuild his spinal column, essentially, right? You know, he was a commander of a boat which didn't do much, and then he lost the command, but in his retelling, and this is, a lot of my sources come from his firstborn son, a man who, la- who changed his name from L. Ron Hubbard Jr. to Ronald DeWolf, in a testimony that he gives on L. Ron Hubbard's life, his father's life. You see this as a, as a character trait throughout his life. He's always overdoing his accomplishments. He's claiming that things happen. There is generally a tinge of truth to it. And this, uh, this does, Alanda, to your question, infuse his writing in, in the sense of, I did this, you can do this, this will give you the power. For example, and this will come up in a moment, Scientology and Dianetics before it continually was getting into trouble with the American Medical Association for making claims that were unsubstantiated. So they constantly would claim that you could cure leukemia, you could cure this or that cancer. And this came from Hubbard himself, these really exaggerated claims, which found their origin in his own biography, which were then uh, repeated in speeches and in writings, and which then led to this notion that this system of thought was significantly more powerful than it is. Now, 
the last part when you said, is this also something that people within Scientology believe? Uh, kind of. Uh, this becomes, it's an interest. So it's certainly what this theology says will happen. If you do it, it, if you do Scientology correctly, you will become a superhuman being with superpowers. I'm not even kidding. That's essentially the, the selling job as you go for it. At the beginning, it's like, we will make you better. As you get further in, it's like, no, no, you're going to get like superhuman powers. Now, you might be asking, so how do we get to the supernatural aspect all of a sudden? Well, the second part of the story that I have, I think, goes some way to explain that. And kind of like the last story in which there was actually two different perspectives that told the same thing, I've got two different perspectives of this story as well. Now, are you guys really ready to get weird? Oh, yeah. That's okay. why we show up to this podcast. Always. Yeah. Okay. Even by our standards, this is going to get pretty weird. Okay. Because I have to tell you about somebody who was influential in L. Ron Hubbard's life, a man named Jack Parsons. So okay. he's born in L.A. in 1914. And interestingly, there's a science fiction connection here. Well, L. Ron Hubbard is an early writer of science fiction stories. Uh, Jack Parsons is inspired by early science fiction stories to the point that as a 14-year-old in 1928, he starts his own amateur rocket experiments. And he takes this pretty far. In 1934, he forms the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory, which later turns into the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, which is an organization that still exists and is part of NASA. In the 1940s, he works on jet-assisted takeoff rockets for the U.S. military. So this guy's legit. He's a rocket pioneer at a time when rocket technology is fairly new. Also in the 1940s, uh, Jack Parsons joins a new religious movement started by a man who you will definitely have heard of, Alistair Crowley. Crowley is, has started a new relig a religious movement, uh, Thelema. Thelema, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And this new religious movement is divinely revealed to Crowley by a supernatural entity named Iowas in 1904. Now, this new religion that Crowley comes up with basically has one commandment, and that commandment is do, do what, what thou, thou wilt. wilt. That's the whole of the law. So basically, take responsibility for your actions, but you are responsible for acting in the way that you feel is truest to you. Uh, don't pay attention to any laws. Don't pay any attention to any customs or anything like that. So I'm just going to throw out there that Aleister Crowley, uh, just to get right to the chase, is probably best known to most people as like the basically the founder of Satanism. Well, what's interesting to me about this religion that's going to, I think, come in later is that there are levels or grades within Thelema. There is the man of earth, which is the lowest, and then there's a hermit who has rejected earth, and then there is the lover of life who has sort of transcended earth and escaped it. Everyone has a true will, which is their calling, and individuals need to be deconditioned from social rules and mores in order to free their true selves from the control of their conscious mind, which in Crowley's religion involved basically lots of sex. In 1942, Jack Parsons becomes head of the Californian branch of the Ordo Templi Orientis, which is an occult organization Crowley is connected to. And this gets uh, Parsons fired from JPL in 1944 because this occult satanic connection and also for creating a hazardous work environment, like literally the last thing you want in a rocket lab. Well, this, this uh, occultist rocket pioneer meets a young science fiction author named L. Ron Hubbard in the mid-1940s to the point that Hubbard actually moves into Parsons' mansion, and together they start working on Parsons' new project, which is titled The Babylon, Babylon Working. Working. 
The idea behind this was to bring a space goddess to Earth to free the Earthlings from their earthly prison and liberate them into space. So the two of them perform all sorts of occult rituals and spells together. Crowley didn't think too much of Parsons' friendship with L. Ron Hubbard. In fact, wrote, uh, Alistair Crowley wrote in 1946, Suspect Ron playing confidence trick. Jack Parsons, weak fool. Obvious victim prowling swindlers. So Crowley thinks that L. Ron Hubbard is basically just sort of playing Parsons and is ripping him off. And what does happen is that L. Ron Hubbard does take $20,000 of Parsons' money and runs off with Parsons' girlfriend, Sarah Northrup. And later on, Northrup would say that she had fallen in love with Hubbard in part because of his heroic war stories. Uh, Hubbard and Northrup spent some, some of Parsons' money on a yacht, which then Parsons tried to sink using a magic spell, performing the full evocation of Bartzabel. I told you this would get wild, which didn't work. Uh, and then Hubbard and Northrop are married in 1946, although Hubbard was still apparently married to Polly Hubbard at the time. Now, according to Northrop, Hubbard was physically and emotionally abusive, tried to convince her to take her own life so that Hubbard wouldn't have to deal with the stigma of getting a divorce. March 3rd, 1951, Hubbard writes to the FBI to tell them that Northrop was a drug-addicted communist. Uh, about a month and a half after that, Northrop sued for divorce, saying that Hubbard had been diagnosed by doctors as having paranoid schizophrenia. And at this point, Northrop basically gets just written out of Hubbard's biography. And in future interviews, Hubbard would just pretend she didn't exist. Now, the Scientology version of that story is that Hubbard was actually infiltrating Parsons' occult group in order to destroy it, and that he rescued Northrop, but didn't marry her. So here, too, we see a lot of the themes that follow Alvon Hubbard throughout his life and uh, I, I think are to some extent infused in the creation of Scientology as well. So the first one, which we already sort of talked about with this, with what happened up to uh, when Nathan took over the narrative, which is this sort of confidence game. And I like that. I like that uh, description of it. He's a confidence man, you know, this kind of low level trickster, but then also the take the money and run thing is over and over again in his life. There's so many times he's got, his son talked a lot about how he had stacks of money, like literal wads of bills within an arm's reach so that at any moment he would be able to just throw it into a duffel bag, jump out the window and start again somewhere else. And he does over and over again. The FBI close in on him. He packs a bag. He heads out of town. That's something that is just part of his biography. And it, it starts to point into, you know, it's, it, it, it's, solidifies his reputation as one of these con artists. The other thing that Nathan touched upon, which is a really upsetting and scary element of his character, is the constant refrain of spousal abuse and more general abuse. Uh, in Dianetics already, there is references to things like homemade abortions and to uh, spousal abuse. Ronald DeWolf, so his firstborn son, uh, claims that he was born prematurely because his mother was beaten to such a degree that she gave birth. And this kind of vicious victimization of women is part of L. Ron Hubbard's biography as well. He claims he was only married once, when in fact he was married three times. 
And yes, you know, his first two wives um, recount really horrific experiences with him, uh, which includes, um, you know, abuse. Uh, So I just wanted to flesh out those elements of the story. We're dealing with somebody who's, you know, he's not a nice guy. I mean, at this point, he's not yet the kind of giant cult leader, but he's not a he's not a great guy. I wouldn't want to hang out with him. Now, the difference between the the mythology and the truth, I'm curious about how much of this information gets out. Let's say like, let's say you're part of Scientology. Do you even have access to these stories, to the outside media, to these alternative stories, which are based in truth versus the mythology? Because like, when I think of a lot of the, the groups, how these work and how cults work, um, often people are alienated from their family, other outside sources of information are cut off and limited. There's like a propaganda, propagandizing that happens, brain, the kind of brainwashing that happens. How would they treat, how do they treat those stories that, that contrast the mythology? So there's a lot of mechanism that allow uh, people within Scientology today to not experience as much cognitive dissonance as you, you might expect, given all the information that's come out. But going backwards in time, I think before the internet, uh, Scientology would have been a lot harder to refute. It would have been harder to gather the kind of information that we have, first-person testimonials, the stuff from his military records. So before the internet emerged, I think Scientology had the protection of just the fact that this kind of information was just generally harder to find. After that, though, with the advent of the internet, and then there is a sort of a turning point around the 2000s, and there are different Scientologists will mark it a different period, but around between 2000 and 2010, there is a massive backlash against Scientology where documentaries come out. One of them uh, is, if, if any of our listeners is interested in learning more, Going Clear is a really fantastic documentary. And I'm guessing, but it comes out around, I think, 2006, something like that. So there's information that starts coming out. How do you deal with this within Scientology? Well, there's a couple of things worth knowing. There's, as with, I guess, any religion, there's different levels of commitment that people have. There's the sort of Scientologist who's kind of flirting with the idea, maybe taking a course on the side. Most of their friends are not Scientologists. Their families aren't Scientologists. They haven't, you know, fully bought in. They're not, they haven't been moved around or something like that. I think for those people, it's hard to control exactly what it is that they can hear and see. But on the other hand, I think at that point, you're not also experiencing some of the more nefarious aspects of that outfit. You're basically taking a course that helps you communicate, that helps you with your relationships. You know, what's the problem? Now, you have levels that go deeper than that, people who are more committed in terms of Scientology. And there, their children go to Scientology school. You know, they work within the organization of Scientology and their information is highly restricted. What you can access in terms of the internet, you're either chaperoned when you, when you use the internet or there are kind of digital chaperones that prevent certain searches from showing you stuff. So there you would actually have to find it. You know, you would have to start having suspicions and you'd have to actively try and circumvent the, the firewalls that are preventing you from seeing this stuff. 
There's other mechanisms that they use as well. They have, uh, they have terms such as SP, an expressive person. Hello, it's Nathan Radke. I thought I'd just jump in at this moment and note that Lee's audio cut out right in the middle of his explanation. What he was saying is SP stands for suppressive person. Back to the show. And if somebody in your orbit is deemed to be by the Scientology administration higher-ups, deemed to be an SP in your life, you are to disassociate with them. And there's some really wrenching stories that I came across where you know, a mother left Scientology, but she's still in touch with her adult daughter. And then the adult daughter comes over and they effectively have their last meal together. And the daughter gives her mom a hug and says, I'm really sorry, but I'm never going to see you again. And there's, even though the church denies that they do this, there's a systematic disassociation uh, with people who are too critical of the church. So if you are in the church, but your family isn't, basically the only relationship they can have to the church without becoming a member is just to say, okay, whatever you want to do is fine with you. It's your thing. So, and and there is then yet a, a further level of commitment to Scientology, which we'll have to get into later called the Sea Orgs. These people are like the paramilitary, hardcore, monastic monks of Scientology. And they are completely kept apart from other people to the to the point where they're separated from their own children. Like literally you give birth, Scientology takes your child, puts it into some kind of, you know, foster care, and you keep working, doing your thing. So it has become more difficult with the advent of the internet, especially since 2000s. But there are definitely mechanisms by which to keep people um, away from that information. And I know I'm rambling, but the last point I want to just mention, and it's one that we've brought up so often in this podcast, it's just a powerful element that community plays. Sometimes, sometimes Scientology members will be critical or wonder, but, you know, everybody they know is in it. And so you make some kind of compromise with yourself. One of the most compelling aspects of Scientology that is brought up over and over again by people who get out is how you do it to yourself. This is a prison that you create for yourself. You put yourself in it and then you guard it. And there is no tyrannical outfit that is as harsh on you, that is as vigilant of you as you can be yourself. And that's one of the aspects of Scientology that I find so incredibly interesting and so incredibly scary. I think that also speaks to why it is that people um, are able to be shielded from the kind of information that might disrupt their worldview. Well, it's very like Foucauldian, isn't it? In a way, like this idea that first someone else is like first an institution is telling you to do a certain thing and then you just end up policing yourself. And I'm curious though about this, like I wonder where that line is between Scientology being about self-help to then becoming like a belief system. I'm really curious about that. And it reminds me of the, the quote about a frog in boiling water, where like, if you threw a frog in boiling water, they'd know it's boiling water and they wouldn't jump in. But if you just slowly increase the temperature, pretty soon they're boiling in hot water. So um, it, it feels a lot to me like that, where like you get into a course, you get into a couple more, and then suddenly you're deep into it and you didn't know how that all happened. Exactly. And I, I wonder, 
if that isn't somewhat of an individual experience for every Scientology member, where that line is when they finally flip into, oh, no, now I'm a Scientologist first and everything else second. But Actually, I, maybe at this point we should, we should boil that frog. Because we have discussed the sort of self-help aspect of this movement, but we haven't really gotten into the belief system aspect of it. So why don't we why don't we turn up the heat a little bit on our on our pot of frogs and talk about what is the belief system exactly? What is being asserted uh, within this organization? I'm sorry to do this. I cannot help but be so ridiculously pedantic. I happened to discover in my research, I don't know why, that the boiling frog metaphor is is not legit. That when you actually try and boil a frog, they do jump out of the water. Were you not listening to the beginning of this episode when I said we should not take literally? That we do them a disservice? Could you please let us have the myth of the boiling frog? Use the meaning. Exactly. I know. I know. uh, Okay. What do Scientologists believe? Again, I think that The theology is not where the action is, but I think it is very compelling in terms of what Elena was saying earlier about how it is that people are seduced into becoming Scientologists. Because I don't think if you were to stop somebody on the street with the fully worked out theology that you would get as many converts as you do with their approach. So first of all, their approach just (laughs) to use that metaphor of boiling a frog, is uh, very good here because you are never really given the full story. So until you, until like right at the end, which is itself really interesting. Most religions don't operate like this. Like most religions, you're like, and this is actually comes from Scientologists themselves who have left the scene. One in particular I thought was so compelling. His name is Jason Begay. Um, he might be known to you. I didn't know him. He's a TV actor. And uh, uh, the biggest claim to fame for him for me was that he's best friends with David Duchovny. But anyway, he was big into Scientology, gets out. He does a YouTube video, for which for a while is a number one, the number one YouTube video, where he discusses his own experiences of uh, being in Scientology. And it, I just found him such a compelling speaker. But what he, he made a few really uh, insightful points, one of which was, what does a Scientologist believe? You ask any other member of any other religion, give it to me in a couple of sentences. There's the famous um, uh, Jewish example, uh, I think it was Hillel, you know, tell me the meaning of the Torah while I stand on one leg, you know, like speak. Get, get to the point already, and you can do it. You can do it with the Torah. You can do it with Christianity. You can do it with Buddhism or Islam. But when you get to Scientology and you ask the Scientologist, what is it actually you believe? You don't get a very clear answer. And in part, that become, that is a result of the fact that they themselves aren't uh, given the full theological uh, workup until something called Operating Thetan Level 3, which for the lay people like us is you are really, really deep into this. So to begin with, the basic premise is that you are carrying with you traumas from your past and those are causing problems in your life. Okay. And, and again, this seems I mean, like- that an, makes sense. Right? It seems like such a reasonable position. In fact, I myself was for a long time part of a meditation outfit that said exactly this, like, 
your problems come from your own psychological disposition to the world. So any, anybody, anytime anybody is upsetting you, it's, it's, it's your problem. You know, you got to fix yourself and just chill, chill out basically. I mean, <laughs> that would give you more, more details, but that was the idea. And so here, this seemed very familiar to me. It's like, yeah, okay. And now it goes a bit further and it says that actually, if you really look into it, these are built up over lifetimes. And again, this is not theologically that far out there. Buddhism and other you know, religions, Hinduism will say something quite similar is that, you know, you're, you're, the mess you're in now is a result of your past karma. And that can be interpreted in a variety of ways. So that's one of the core ideas is that you're not happy because of unprocessed suffering that has entered into your psyche through past trauma. And really, there, there's, a, there's a kind of a construct of the mind. You have the analytic mind, and you have the reactive mind. And the problem is that we are always living in a reactive state, where you say something to me, and I don't, um, because of my past traumas, I will lash out at you, or I'll get super angry, or I'll get self, I don't know, I might become ill even. And so at the beginning, most of the work is to find these kinds of what, what L. Ron Hubbard already mentions in that Dianetics article called engrams, E-N-G-R-A-M-S, engrams. These are the kind of particles of trauma that accrue to your soul. So what happens? You go to a Scientology or Dianetics outfit. You take one of these tests that Nathan took. And then you get led into you, the next step is to once you know you're you're like okay this is interesting. Um, the next step is you get something called an audit. You are audited. Now this is a really interesting moment. You are subjected to what the creator of the Going Clear film helpfully calls. His name is Alex Gibney, and he helpfully calls it one third of a lie detector test. And what it is is it's a machine. And you hold something that looks like cans. They actually refer to them as cans. You hold these cans that are attached to wires, and it passes an, um, an electrical current through your body that's imperceptible to you, but the machine is able to read your galvanic skin response, which is, again, when you do a lie detector test, what you are looking for is a certain set of physiological responses when people are stressed or excited that don't show up when they are calm and mellow. And so this often indicates that somebody's lying, they, they sweat a little bit, they, their heart increases a little bit. So what, what Scientology has already from the 50s is they bought this, they bought the rights to this machine well, did they really buy the rights? That's interesting itself. But okay, well, that's not for this narrative at the moment. They, they bought the rights to this machine, which functions a bit like a lie detector. And so you sit there and you're asked by the, I guess we'll call them an analyst, to- uh, The auditors. Auditors, thank you, to describe something that, uh, you know, traumatic event, a stressful event, a fight with your partner or something. And they will notice the needle on this thing go up a bit. And it'll start to, you know, indicate that you're feeling a bit stressed. And they ask you to re repeat this experience narrated over and over again until that needle goes down. And then they're like, okay, cool. 
We've worked through this experience. Now let's go to the next one. What's the next problematic thing you can remember? And on it goes. And as you audit, get audited, the idea is that, you know, once you go through your whole life, you think, well, I'm done now. But then you're supposed to think of something and, oh, whoops, the meter is up again. Oh, maybe it's something from your past life. And so now you start recounting, oh, and I remember this and I remember that and all that. Now, the idea is that once you go through this process of sort of domesticating the trauma in your life over and over again, you will eventually go clear. You will have no more engram in your system and you will be a perfectly liberated being, which essentially will be like a superhuman. You know, it's like, remember those myths where we used to talk about in the 80s how people only use like 3% of their brain. Right. And if we could only access that extra 97%, we would be so much more awesome. That's basically what they're selling, right? Now, later, and, and this is where if you like watch South Park or something, this is where they really like make fun of Scientologists because Elwan Hubbard, later on, there is a theology of, an evil lord called Zenu and how he like threw the souls of their bodies into a volcano and you know okay so that is an aspect of it but it's not the aspect of Scientology that I think is compelling for people and that ropes people in it's the thing that you learn about when it's way too late to get out and at that point we that sunk cost fallacy concept that we've developed often in the podcast I think is operative there it's like most people, by the time they read this whole thing about the alien Xenu, they're like, oh, okay, whatever. I mean, <laughs> I've already spent $100,000 on this. I lost all my family and gave up my daughter and whatever. I mean, at this point, this is like not a big thing. Okay. Oh, that was a very long-winded answer, Elena. I'm sorry. But uh, that is, I hope. I what... mean, it's Elena's fault. Elena, you know it what happens Elena's when you fault, ask Leah right? a question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. No, that was really helpful. And I, I mean, it is very it's sad to see that kind of manipulative approach where it's like it just you know steadily slowly takes someone deeper and deeper by like you said kind of slowly revealing the truth but starting off in a very almost like very practical ways where they, like these self-help things or self-knowledge tests which aren't dissimilar to other things we do like you said um, other religions might speak about it or like intuitive healers that I've gone to, like it's about talking about your past, your narrative, your past traumas, or like Myers-Briggs tests, with every, which everybody takes, right, to know about yourself and your personality and what you're meant for. And, and so it's not dissimilar to that, but it's just sad to see how deep, how deep it can take you. Yeah, there's nothing in that that's necessarily bad. I mean, the idea, I, I do have this, an issue with this idea that bad things that happen to you are happening because of something wrong with you, because that it, it totally ignores structural societal like phenomena that you have no control over, because there are structural inequalities that exist in society. Like if you are stricken with poverty, that isn't necessarily because you've got a bad attitude. That's because of generational poverty. That's because of structural inequalities. Um, or maybe because you have a bad attitude, but there's different yeah, aspects like of it. sounds like something someone with a bad attitude would say. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's my bad attitude coming through. <laughs> but, but there's something that I found creepy and familiar about that description, about how basically people are asked to go through their like most humiliating, maybe their most incriminating memories. And these are all being recorded, aren't they? 
Exactly. So this is where we start to see the sort of dark underbelly of Scientology and why so many people, I think, who, who are fed up with it and are like, okay, you know what, I'm just going to leave, don't. Because there is stuff in all of our past, and this stuff is, when you are in Scientology and you do these auditing things, they, this stuff is recorded and it is filed forever. There are rooms filled with just Tom Cruise's auditing reports. You know, if he's a normal person, Let's put it like that. He has got a lot of stuff he does not want the rest of the world to find out about. And so just that is a very compelling reason not to make waves in Scientology, because this kind of stuff can ruin lives, careers, relationships. Who knows? And even That's if it terrible. wouldn't, even if, yeah, and even if it, sorry, Elena, just, even if it wouldn't actually ruin your life if it came out, it's probably enough that you worry that it would. It's so wild to me because it's not, it's like a natural blackmail setup and no actual therapist or anything would ever keep something like that on you. Like as a hard, as like a hard record of that, that just seems totally wild to me. No, but the Stasi might. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, but this is the thing that gives such power. It's like this kind of confessional. Like, Elena, we've never, we would never say this out loud, but you know how Lee confided in us that at the end of the film, Harry and the Hendersons, he cried. Oh, right. I do remember that. Yeah. Like something yeah. like that. We'll obviously never tell anybody, but if we did, no. if that got out, just imagine what that would do. Oh my gosh. Crushing. If, if, if Nathan were to audit us, Elena, we, the, the snippets of that audit would appear as intros to the Uncover Up podcast. That's true. Selectively take the most embarrassing bits and, and throw right, a, right yeah. up. Right That's why it's there. good that I don't have that power. <laughs> but I want to, I, I, I'm sorry if I'm talking too much. You guys just interrupt me. But I wanted to go back to Elena's question about how do you boil the frog in terms of going from self-help to religion? I thought this was so interesting also as a historical progression because I think it tells us so much about what Scientology actually is about. L. Ron Hubbard creates a religion in order to solve two problems. He creates a religion in order to stop the American Medical Association from constantly harassing him that he's making claims that are obviously bogus, like Dianetics or later Scientology can heal your cancer, right? He was saying stuff like that. It was clearly bogus. But somebody's got to step in and stop it. So the American Medical Association was hounding him, but so was the IRS. And what Elwan Hubbard, being a good uh, confidence man, quickly realizes and says out loud to a number of different people, including his son, is the way to make these problems go away is to become a religion. Because once you are acknowledged as a religion, your beliefs are now protected. You can make outrageous claims because you're no longer making them as a medical doctor. You're making them as a religious uh, person. And it was very interesting when I was listening to the um, Clearwater hearing that the people conducting the hearing were extremely aware of the fact that they were not able to criticize Scientology's theological claims. And so as soon as they go from being a self-help kind of psychology outfit, which is 
secular, which makes medical claims, which are testable, and you can you ask for the receipts, where are the papers, where's the where the peer blind studies that demonstrate this stuff. While that is the case with a self-help outfit, it's no longer the case as a religion. And the same thing with the IRS. They were making money. And, you know, Alan Hubbard never paid taxes. He just didn't do it. Up until, like, there's a crisis at the end of the 80s and into the early 90s where Scientology owes billions of dollars in back taxes and this claim to religion has to be reestablished. And because it is, they are now one of the wealthiest organizations out there. You can go onto Wikipedia and type in something along the lines of the richest religions in the world. And Scientology is at the bottom of that list, but it makes the list. Like of the 25 organizations, it makes the list as one of the most rich, like just especially if you think about how many members there are. So it's interesting that <laughs> the organization itself had to make that transition from a self-help outfit to a religion. And it was not convincing then either, you know, and it was sneaky and all of that. And one of the things that struck me, and this is why I called it a corporate scam to begin with. This is really, for me, the essence of Scientology. Now, as an analyst of conspiracy theories, I'm really interested in the psychology that keeps people trapped in a system of thought like that, especially when there's an option to walk away, which there isn't always in Scientology. But what makes Scientology truly a corporate conspiracy is this structure. So, and it's conspiracy involves, it's, it's, it took me a while to disentangle this because there's really three aspects of it. One, there's selling a fraudulent product to people. And this is the courses, right? Like, oh, this is going to cure you, help you, make you better. And while people do report initial successes, everybody who got out is like, the, the longer I did it, the worse I felt. And clearly, Nobody, and I'm sorry to be a bit pedantic about this, but nobody is able to actually demonstrate the kinds of stuff that they claim, like all the superpower stuff. And again, this causes some cognitive dissonance among members when, you know, the OT5, who, according to the list, is supposed to have like, whatever, a perfect memory and, you know, all of these kind of very clear abilities. It's just a schmuck, you know, and you're like working hard and spending a lot of money to be like that person. One part of the scam is selling a fraudulent product to people. And that's a lot of money comes in to the organization that way. And that's what Scientology, first and foremost, is about. It's a way to sell courses. But then the second aspect is a tax scam in that it doesn't then operate. And I'm going to make a lot of enemies by saying this, but um, we have a lot of medical scams in that are operating right now in Canada, the United States, Western Europe, places I'm familiar with, most of the stuff labeled alternative medicine is this, is this kind of a scam. But it's, um, I don't know how to put it, it's a sort of like a transactional scam where you don't actually get cured, but the business itself still operates like a legit business in the sense that the product isn't poison, they pay taxes, the health and safety of the people who produce it, you know, they still have to follow the rules. This is another area where structurally Scientology does not follow the rules and where the protection of religion allows it to do things that simply other organizations would not be allowed to do. So they sell courses, 
And then they don't, they don't um, pay money on it because they don't have to pay taxes. Religious organizations are supposed to, however, not be making a profit. So you're supposed to be spending the money that you're making, charities, religious buildings, stuff like that. So what Scientology is doing is putting money into real estate. So they take this money, they put it into real estate, and then they use it for church ends, making Scientology, I think, one of, if not the largest real estate holder in Hollywood, California, and also globally. They have a massive real estate empire, which they are not paying any taxes on. And then the third aspect of the corporate scam, which is less so today, an aspect of it, but more so in the time of L. Ron Hubbard, was full-on racketeering. What would happen is they'd set up these um, self-help franchises. And as the franchise, when they, when they ended up making money, they would come in. L. Ron Hubbard and his son would come in and literally rough the people up physically, intimidate them into signing over the franchise to them. And then they would just profit, pocket the money. This same kind of exploitation still exists to actually a really terrible extent in a radical segment of Scientology called the Sea Orgs. And they are exploited ruthlessly for labor. Like they are paid maximum about $50 a week and easily work 50, 80 hours a week. Pregnant women scraping paint off buildings, you know, really menial hard work for which they get basically no remuneration. So it's a three-part corporate scam of which the theology and all of that is meant to entrap the customers to continuously, you know, front money for the courses and essentially keep the organization liquid. Now, it's hard to pull off something like that without getting the attention of the authorities. In particular, I would say the FBI and the IRS. And of course, in the 1960s and 70s, this starts to happen to some great degree. Now, I will say that the, uh, the Church of Scientology's position is that the FBI and the CIA were both using sort of illicit and unethical means in order to spy on the Church of Scientology, to which I would say, I bet you that's true. Because it's the FBI and the CIA. I pretty much guarantee you they were doing that. So I, I have to say, I have to agree with the Church on that, that point. I would be astonished. I mean, we're talking about the age of COINTELPRO and things like that. So I think, unfortunately, it's probably likely that they were. However, uh, what can't be denied was that there was a lot of files building up about some of the activities of the church. And this was being done within these government agencies. And Hubbard was concerned about this. Now, in the 1960s, there is a part of the church formed called the Guardian's Office. And they're there to protect the interest of Scientology. And the head, or one of the heads of the Guardian's office was Mary Sue Hubbard, the wife of L. Ron Hubbard. In the 1970s, because the Church of Scientology had gotten the attention of the FBI and the IRS for tax issues and other things, the Guardian office orders something called Guardian Order 732, the removal and correction of any government files harmful to the church. And Scientology agents named Gerald Wolfe and Michael Meisner actually go as far as to get jobs with the IRS as clerk typists to gain access to government files. In November of 1974, Scientologist operatives bugged an IRS meeting regarding the tax status of the church with a device hidden in the room because it's the 70s and everybody's bugging everybody. 
1975, Scientologist agents broke into a government's lawyer's office to copy files regarding the government's strategy on the church's tax status. But then in the spring of 76, those agents, Wolf and Meisner, were caught by a government librarian while trying to photocopy documents from the FDA and the D.C. Police Department. And Wolf gets arrested. Meisner goes into hiding, but he's hiding with the Guardian's office. And at some point, it turns from him hiding with them to them kind of having a protective custody over him. Now, Wolf pleads guilty and he keeps the church out of it. But Meisner then escapes from the Guardian's office and goes to the FBI to confess and get a plea deal. And then on July 8th, 1976, there is one of the most massive FBI raids of all time. 156 agents, 21 hours. They fill a truck with documents that they take out of the church. And they uncover plots to frame enemies of the church with crimes like terrorism, hit and runs. Uh, 11 high-ranking Scientologists, including Wolf and Mary Sue Hubbard, are tried and found guilty of charges of conspiracy. And Mary Sue gets five years in prison. And at this point, L. Ron Hubbard goes into the hiding basically for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, in Canada, uh, in 1983, police raid the Scientology headquarters on Young Street. Uh, seven members in Canada were convicted of conspiracy against the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, uh, Ontario Ministry of the Attorney General, and the RCMP, the Mounties. The church had to pay a $250,000 fine for breaching the public trust. Now, according to that's according to sort of official history and uh, government files and journalism, newspaper reports and things like that. But uh, as I have throughout this, I will give the church a chance to respond. And I will read this, uh, this end note that they have on their website. Because on their website, they talk about how they had something called Project Snow White, not Operation Snow White, but the Snow White Project. And all they were trying to do was just use Freedom of Information Act to gain information about their church and to then correct things that were wrong about what the government thought, which is fine. And at the end note of that website, at the very bottom of the page, it says, and I quote, the illegal activities of certain members of the Guardian's office, a former autonomous unit within the church in the 1970s that was disbanded in 1983, represented a distortion of the Snow White program, mislabeled as Operation Snow White by certain critics. So again, there's, there's two options for you. You can, you can say that this was a massive Operation Snow White, which was basically an infiltration of the American government, or it was just sort of harmless uh, people trying to uh, use their rights of freedom of information to gain information on their own church. And then a couple of people got a little out of hand and had to be arrested. So again, I've given you both sides. But that is not at all the extent of it. I mean, certainly there's a lot more stuff, especially with Elon Hubbard. But the thing that really shocked me, I guess, was what happened in the 90s, early 90s, when the IRS comes looking for the tax dollars. So yes, Church of Scientology is a religion, but is it really? And don't they maybe owe taxes? And if it turns out that they owe taxes, they owed it in the, you know, to the tune of billions with a B of dollars, and it would have destroyed the organization. So this podcast would not have happened had the IRS ruled that Scientology was in fact not a religion. But what happened was that when the IRS started going after Scientology, Scientologists went after the IRS and they didn't go after the IRS as an institution. They went after individual IRS agents. Everybody involved in 
Scientology, like there, who and the IRS, who had was working on the Scientology files, was systematically harassed from, you know, meaningless lawsuits. Which, if they're filed against you as an individual person, you have to pay out of pocket to deal with this. Your institution, the IRS, does not come to your rescue if your neighbor says that you play your music too loud or something. And so, they, the IRS, was themselves so harassed that in 1993, Scientology offers the IRS a deal. They offer the IRS a deal. I mean, can you imagine? Like, everybody's afraid of the IRS. Donald Trump was afraid of the IRS, right? But not Scientology. Scientology goes after them mercilessly for two years. And then at the end of it says, we can make it all go away if you call us a religion. And that's why Scientology today is a religion. And I'd just like to put in a caveat here, because clearly you've not heard enough of me talking, but I was, again, really shocked in my research, because I spent, I'd say, about 10 to 15 years of my graduate career trying to figure out one single question, which is, among other things, though, what is religion? What is it? And it turns out, in that whole time, it never occurred to me that there is one agency that is able to define that in black and white, and that's the IRS. If you want to know what a religion is, you call the IRS and say, is this thing a religion? They will give you a yay or nay answer, and that's that. Because if they say you're a religion, you're a religion. That's At why least in the United States. Exactly. They are not a religion everywhere. And so I know, for example, in Germany, uh, Scientology is banned. Um, at least as a public organization, you know, it has... It does not have the status of a religion and can't operate as such. And so therefore also doesn't have the protections. Sort of makes you wonder what they're going to do to us for putting out this podcast. I, okay, sorry, uh, but maybe listeners have noticed that there was a long delay between our last podcast where the three of us got together and this one. And part of that had to do with COVID shenanigans where we were thrown for a loop by lockdowns that nobody told us anything about but another aspect of it was that i kind of had a panic attack for about a month because this is an official church policy and it's called fair game and actually uh lee remney and mike rinder both former very high level scientologists who escaped uh, have a podcast called fair game and it's an official Scientology principle, goes right back to the early 1950s with L. Ron Hubbard. His son, Ron DeWolf, was the principal agent who did this. You attack the attackers. Anybody who's going to attack you, you attack them, and no holds barred. And they do. And they do things like, you know, they don't just play ball according to the rules. They don't just send you a letter that you, you know, you're being summoned because you've made some kind of claims about Scientology that are not true. That kind of stuff is problematic and they are very litigious. But they do stuff like send people to people's houses in cars and then they just sit there for days on end. Oh, you call the cops? What? There's somebody sitting across the street in their car Oh, well, then the church sends somebody else. Now, what are you going to call the cops about somebody else sitting in front? You know, they'll send you pictures to your home of your children going to school. They do this, and they do it especially 
to people like us who don't have a lot of legal support when they speak out. And I went through a lot of emotions and, and, and I actually had to talk to my family for the first time ever in doing this podcast. I had to talk to my family and I say, look, I'm going to do this. And I'm actually kind of worried that there is a potential for retribution. And I actually expected my family to say things like, and my friends who I talked to and my colleagues, and I even went as far as to talk to my union steward <laughs> to see what kind of legal protections my job would offer up if people started calling my employer, making false claims about the things I do at work, you know, I got scared. And that fear I found was also really instructive and made me realize just how stuck a lot of people in Scientology must be. I'm not a Scientology member. I don't have anything to do with them. I don't have any family in there. And I got close to not doing this podcast because I was afraid. Now imagine if you if you actually have to face separating from your children forever or you know being getting 20 lawsuits that you have to pay out of pocket things that have really happened to real people that you know about I was really shocked at how powerful the threat like that could be in terms of shutting me up it occurred to me also that you know, we have talked about the CIA, we have talked about Al-Qaeda, we have talked about North Korea, the FBI. Now, I'm not making equivalencies here either. What all I'm saying is that we've talked about some outfits that are pretty scary. Russian trolls. Never once did I think that they would retaliate against us. But this time I'm worried. I just want to say on the record, that I am forcing Lee and Elena to do this. Neither of them wanted to say any of those things. This is on me. Spartacus. No, I forced Elena and Nathan to do this. This is entirely on me. <laughs> and Elena stays quiet wisely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elena's like, oh, harass those guys. Like, you just can't stand by when you see exploitation and oppression being justified by belief systems. And if just, there's anything I've learned this year with all of the work I've done on cults, it is that. I'm just blown away by the scale of Scientology and the kind of power they wield. I think that's what's really been brought home to me today. And hopefully it doesn't literally get brought to your home. Yeah, hopefully yeah. not. But one of the issues is they believe that psychiatry is at the root of a huge amount of evil in human society. And they do not believe that you can engage in psychiatry. Psychiatry is, if you're going to have like an evil enemy, like a devil figure in a religion, psychiatry has that function for Scientology. That means that there are a lot of people who need psychiatric help who are not getting it. The Sea Org is another is an organization within Scientology where the abuses are really extreme. So as I said earlier, you can think of Scientology as having like these three levels. You can be a kind of loosely affiliated. You can be a Scientologist, you know, who's really into it, or you can be a Sea Org member. Sea Org members sign a billion year contract. You never get out. Now, often these contracts are signed by children um, and they give over all responsibility to the church. The church becomes your legal guardian. They become the, your spokesperson. This is why even people in the Sea Orgs who want to get out can't anymore, 
because they don't have any more legal standing. If they are ill within the organization and they want to see a doctor, well, the Scientologist will bring them a Scientology doctor. If they want to see somebody else, they want to see a lawyer. Sorry, we are your lawyer. We are your legal representation. They are often removed from their families. This is where it gets very cultish. They're removed from their families. Um, they work incessantly. Their belief is that they are working, again, Elena, you mentioned earlier about sort of this tragedy of people wanting help or people believing they're giving help and it being subverted. This tragedy is especially so in the C organization where these people who are in it believe that what they are doing is working to save humanity and what they are doing is being ruthlessly exploited. Now, here's, I want to, um, and I feel like, I don't know how long we've got, I feel like we're kind of coming to the end. So I want to give you an example that came from the film Going Clear. And it's about the compound. Um, Clearwater, Florida is one area where Scientology has a real stronghold. The other one is in Hollywood, California, uh, or in California. They have a base in California. And this comes from a compound in California. Now, the Sea Organization its history is really interesting as well. L. Ron Hubbard was running away from various authority figures and he figures what better way to get a, away from everybody than getting a big boat and going into the ocean where there is no law that can get me and that's how the sea organization is born. Of course, it needs to be staffed by, you know, people and in his uh, charlatan way, you know, managed to figure out a way not to pay anybody. So there are all these volunteers work on the boat. Okay, so... There are people who have spent their life now in the Sea Orcs. You know, their parents or they got interested in Scientology in the 70s and 80s, and they've lived their entire life in this, including in the Sea Orcs. They are now in their 60s. They don't have parents. Maybe they never had children. If they do, maybe they don't know where they are. They are isolated from everybody. The upper echelon of the Sea Organization was sort of commandeered to show up at this new compound that was built called Gold. It's called, it's called the Gold Base. So they go to the compound and they are interned in essentially barracks in the compound. They can't leave, there's bars on the, on the windows, stuff like this. And they are treated awfully. They're given scraps of food. There's no, you know, they don't get daily showers. They don't, you know, I mean, like the basic necessities are not met. And these are people who've dedicated their entire life to this organization, who are technically run the Sea Organization. So here's this, this has not left me since I heard this example. Um, David Miscavige, who is the current head of um, Scientology. He takes over in 1986 after Alvon Hubbard has a heart attack. And there is a kind of an internal power vacuum slash power game and, and Miscavige comes up on top. And he's not a nice guy, character wise. He doesn't, he seems like, to put it mildly, he seems like a bit of a sadist. Um, now he's got these, these members in this compound. He says, one day he shows up there with a stereo and he says, we're gonna play musical chairs. And he turns on the music and there's a set of chairs and the people have to walk around just like musical chairs. But here's the rub. The last person sitting gets to stay in Scientology. Everybody else is gonna get kicked out. 
As they walk around the chairs, the music stops and fights break out. Like people are fighting. People are literally beating each other so that they would be allowed to stay in those conditions. In this kind of jail cell where they're given scraps of food, where they're never allowed out, where they don't get to see their family, where they don't get basic medical care. They are tearing each other's hair out bloodying each other's faces in order to be the last one sitting. And when the game ends, Miscavige turns off the music and says something to the effect of, yeah, I was just kidding this time, but next time it'll be for real. For me, that was such a both heart-wrenching and so compelling that this prison is so powerful that you the, the door is open. You can walk out right now, but not only do you not want to go, you will hurt others to stay. And I think that's where these abuses are happening. And what we haven't talked about are just the, the horrible pain of disassociation where parents and children are, are in a sense forcibly separated, where one person cuts everybody out of their life. And parents today, you know, are like, I saw my daughter 10 years ago. I saw my son 15 years ago. Those are a kind of an abuse that's hard to quantify. I think you would never be able to secure any kind of conviction. I don't even know what, what law that would fall under, but it's pervasive. And so when, you know, when I started, I was interested in Scientology more than two decades ago. And I was interested because of the kind of ridiculous theology and it was like, oh my God, look at what those people believe and stuff like that. And it was, uh, it was, to be frank, it was a little bit of fun on my part. But when you learn about the horrors that are going on underneath the surface, this is not just another religion. This is not just one of those, you know, there's abuses everywhere and you can find them here as well as there. This is an organization that seems to be based on that kind of abuse, on exploitation, on emotional torture, on peddling fear and anxiety as its, as its main tools to keep people compliant and quiet. And, and, and it even worked almost on me. Um, 